I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. Good, and we are live, so welcome to the second or third um, Eurobytes for this year, I think it's the, the second. And whenever I say, well, this world is just moving ever faster and it's never, there's never a dull moment, yes, it so happens. So, I mean, Germany, the government has sort of successfully shifted the narrative from the farmers' protests to the somewhat staged anti-fascist protests and obviously smearing painting everybody with the same brush but so we've, we've gotten the feedback that obviously um, our view is very germano-centric and Europe is more than just Germany and what a better perspective to introduce than this perspective from a representative of the great uh, nation of France that in so many ways is probably the most European actor in all of this since Germany, as we had seen it traditionally in American satrapy, and has been pushed closer in that directive, in, in that direction. And um, with that, yeah, we've got uh, Thierry, and um, who's who's uh, very much clued in, military background, and who will have a very interesting perspective of a lot of things that have been happening <coughs> in Europe. And elsewhere. I mean, um, we're going to have a bit of a tour de force across some of the latest conflict, be that Russia, Ukraine, be that Iran, Pakistan. Yes, that did happen too. Be that what's happening in the Middle East and Israel and what's happening in the Red Sea. So, so much to talk about. And uh, we have a person who's uh, by his military background uniquely placed to, to give us a good assessment and his read. And uh, that being said, uh, well, welcome, Thierry. Thank you for, for being um, with us today. And obviously, um, the, the first, we want to f uh, start with a very general question about France, just for it's a, it's a mostly American audience, but, but not just um, about France to understand more about the, the French uniqueness or actually established, is it unique? And then move into the conflict sort of for, for you, um, for your um, well experienced military eye what what is your take on some of the conflicts but i'm i'm, I'm gonna uh, abuse the privilege of being the first one to talk and i would like to dive straight into so it is the german or the wider held perspective that france is probably the most independent nation in europe it left nato at uh, the, the, the military structure of nato in the 1960s but stayed part of the political alliance of nato i think you you guys rejoined, but I'm not 100% sure. And uh, you guys went ahead with developing um, your own plane. You left the Eurofighter Consortium. You developed your own very capable carrier, capable plane, the Rafael. Um, so the impression is that France is a much more independent character in Europe than the United Kingdom, who's the great American ally, the special uh, ally and Germany that has always been firmly in America's um, um, orbit just during the Cold War. So is that <clears throat> is that correct? Was France ever more independent than the rest of Europe? Is it still? 
or are there some misconceptions? So if you could add a bit of nuance to that, and then I'm just uh, hand over to Fabian, who has a recently promoted uh, cadet in the German um, German army. Uh, we'll have a couple of questions too. But yes, so first, what, is, is our impression correct that France is a somewhat more independent actor? Um, or is there something that, that, that we are missing? Over to you. Jerry. Well, first of all, uh, what we need to talk about is uh, the history that has been bringing us to wherever we are right now. Okay. So let's go back to the end of the Second World War. <clears throat> General de Gaulle. Uh, I've been seeing that the American administration have been trying to take over our territories and tried, in fact, to influence the way that we were uh, working on the politics in France by imposing certain structure. And uh, General de Gaulle was uh, completely against, in fact, this policy. And he has been fighting back the, the American administration to stay completely independent. Okay. Uh, right after that, uh, we have been reaching, in fact, the NATO organization, but not the command. Okay, so basically, we were part of the alliance, but not under the commands of uh, of the uh, NATO governance, which made us at that moment very independent, and we had, in fact, the capacity to retaliate in case of there will be a conflict by developing L LSNL. Uh, submarines and uh, our nuclear capacity. So therefore, <clears throat> uh, France had always, because of its interest in Africa, had always a certain flexibility and independence in regards of the way that uh, NATO was conducting its uh, propagation and operation. Until Nicolas Sarkozy has been taking over, and ask, in fact, to reach the, the command uh, of NATO and therefore being completely submitted to, uh, to its, uh, its management, which made us right now completely dependent of uh, the, the governance that has been established within NATO. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go back right now to what is going on with the Macro, uh, Macron administration. This guy is totally submissive to what is decided and by Bruxelles and by uh, the NATO governance. And uh, we know that he's coming from the, uh, <clears throat> the young leader uh, organization that is led by the WEF. Okay, so basically this guy, due to the fact that his uh, uh, presidential campaign was completely financed by uh, Soros, Goldman and Sachs, and uh, Rothschilds. He's completely submissive to the master that has been deciding, in fact, the governance in France. And actually, what we are uh, noticing right now is that he is putting all the policies necessary to destroy completely the notion of nations that has been constituting France until now. His dream is about to become the president of Europe. And uh, he considers that France is not a country anymore. This is just a land that needs to be integrated in something that would be called the European nations, uh, the way that uh, USA has been constituted, which is completely antinomic with, on the cultural point of view, on the religion point of view, on the economic dynamic point of view, and so on. <clears throat> so whatever decision that Macron is taking right now, this is in fact to focus on the final deal. And the yeah. final deal is to make sure that every nation constituting Europe will be disappearing and having, in fact, this governance. So basically, if you look, if you uh, take some distance out of it, you can uh, imagine that the European Union is a sort of open air laboratory for the governance that the globalists want to put together. And this is the reason of the conflict with Russia, because Russia disagree with being integrated to this European Union the way it is constituted, because it's very independent on the cultural point of view, on the religion point of view, on the political point of view. 
and they don't want to be submit by the policy that the European Union would be uh, putting together. <clears throat> Vladimir Putin has been proposing the integration to the uh, Eurasian blocs, but only on the economical point of view. So therefore, what he wanted to do is a sort of uh, commercial collaboration in the way that uh, um, we will be constituting this block that would be against, in fact, the Anglo-Saxon world. And Merkel has been refusing six times because she was submitted to Washington. And uh, the, reason, the reason for which uh, this was happening, we don't know, but I do believe that uh, the US administration had some uh, 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 leverage or pressure over her of whatsoever is in the back end, we don't know, okay? <clears throat> now, there is something that is very important, in fact, to underline. The agriculture crisis that Germany is knowing right now is completely linked to the conflict in Ukraine. And I am going to explain. 42% of the lands in Ukraine has been acquired by uh, Cargill, Monsanto, and DuPont. And uh, what is underlining in the back end of this story is that uh, European Union and the WEF have been deciding that the agriculture would be managed by Ukraine. And this is the reason why the conflict is continuing. Uh, because their plan is about, in fact, to destroy the agriculture in Germany, destroy the agriculture in France. And this is the reason why, in fact, the both governments, they are uh, suppressing the subsidiaries and they are re-establishing the tax on the carburant, which made, in fact, the business model of the farmers completely obsolete. So therefore, they want to destroy our agriculture to push the production in Ukraine. <clears throat> and this is part of a master plan that has been established by the WEF. They want to manage Europe the way that USSR was managed. And this is a gigantic mistake because they are going against the interests of the people of the different industries. And... Uh, uh, the result out of it is that right now we are seeing a, a massive retaliations by the German farmers and by the French farmers. This weekend, for example, the French farmers have been blocking uh, uh, a portion of uh, highway uh, between uh, uh, between Toulouse and uh, Béziers and has been blocking, in fact, every traffic, which has been uh, a, a complete disaster. But compared to what is happening right now in Germany, this is nothing. Nevertheless, I do believe that because the farmers, they are not listened by the government, this is going to poison the atmosphere and the conflict is going to grow and to grow until, in fact, the two countries, Germany and France, will be blocking completely their activities. Actually, I want to come back to what happens uh, two summer ago. In Deutschland, <clears throat> the farmers had the same problem because the European Union has been deciding that the farmers in Holland will be stopping uh, the, 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 the raising of cows and, uh, and uh, sheep. Okay, So the farmer has been uh, retaliating against the government and the government has been sending the police and police has been shooting the farmers. There were some people that have been wounded and people that have been killed. So this is enhancing the fact that they have this master plan to completely suppress agriculture all over Europe to push it in Ukraine. <clears throat> so I don't know how this stuff is going to end, but I do believe that if all the farmers, they realize what is the master plan that the European Union has been putting together, this is going to end extremely bad. Right, thank you. So um, I think we've, we've might bracket that very exciting question of the, the farmers out for now. We might return to it at the end of the podcast. Um, I want to give the others a chance. So, Lucas, thanks for joining us. And quick introduction for Lucas. He's actually the, the most francophone and francophile in this uh, podcast. Oh, sure. So, Th thank and, you so much. And um, so, for Lucas, just so Thierry gave us a to the, the force of um, just generally how independent is France really? And he, he gave us an outline from De Gaulle to Sarkozy 
and to Macron, meaning a downward trending graph of the yeah. French uh, independence, sort of suddenly much, much, more, much more dependent on the European Union and NATO from a, for, a, a former formidable independent force. Um, we'll dwell on the French geopolitical bit before we dive into the other conflicts and pick Thierry's brain. But Lucas and Fabian, any other questions you would like to have in terms of how he sees France's role currently in, in the world, what it ought to be or what it is at the moment? So any questions from your side? I don't want to hog um, the question limelight. Not Excuse yet from my side. First of all, thank you very much, Thierry, for joining us. Um, I pass on to Fabian as I've only been joining some minutes ago, so I haven't had the chance yet to listen to everything you've said. Thank you. Okay. Well, I I would like to continue then with the with the Russia Ukraine conflict. Um, I've been hearing a lot of voices of reason out of out of um, the United States that have been waiting for a European actor to rise up to restart negotiations with Moscow. Um, the highest expectations, of course, are on 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 Berlin and Paris, but. Um, when you state that uh, Macron is basically, um, he is very um, subversive to all the decisions of the NATO governments, <clears throat> we're not going to get any negotiation out of Berlin. That's not going to happen. Um, I see, uh, it's, it's especially after Nord Stream 2, what happened, um, there, there is no way that Berlin is going to be on the offensive to start some kind of, of peace negotiations. But when you've mentioned that Macron is basically in the same boat, um, how many years does he have left? Four? Three and a half. Three and a half. So that, that's three and a half years of, of, I mean, because we have elections here in 2025. <clears throat> that means we are there's at least going to be another one and a half years until anything happens do you do you see any um movement or push within france <clears throat> to uh work on behalf of the people the farmers to um basically pick up negotiations again with with moscow to to end this because this is in the greater scheme all part of it well Let's go back to the beginning of the conflict, right before uh, the 24th of February 2022. Okay, Macron goes to the Kremlin <clears throat> and tries to tell Vladimir Putin that he should not respond to any provocation that are going to happen with Kiev. So what does it mean? <clears throat> And I want to come back to one or two weeks before this event. General Valéry in the U.S. contacted me and sent me a video. And he said, Thierry, do you think that Vladimir Putin is going to attack uh, Ukraine? I look at the video and you see a train fully loaded with military gears. And I said to Paul, well, look at where the sun is coming from. So that means that this train is coming from the west and goes to the east. Who is on the west of Donbass? This is Kiev. It's not Moscow. It's not Krasnodar. It's not Russia. So that means that the Ukrainians, they have the intention, in fact, to attack the Donbass. Because I was knowing that all the oligarchs, and especially uh, Akhmetov, wanted to get back his assets because he was managing most of the mining industry in this region. And he has been losing his assets due to the conflict. <clears throat> so basically, the Ukrainian had the intention to attack the Donbass. And certainly Macron was knowing about it. This is the reason why when he met with Vladimir Putin, he was telling him, don't respond to this provocation. And we see in fact, what was happening during this meeting? First of all, uh, Macron did not submit to the, the PCR test, and it was in the COVID, uh, COVID period. So basically, we know why he has been refusing. Therefore, Vladimir Putin has been putting him at the extremity of a very long table. But 
That was also because he wanted to humiliate him. Uh, Macron has been extremely incorrect because he was uh, broadcasting different conversation that he had with Vladimir Putin on the phone on TV. And this, on the Russian point of view, this is not acceptable because whatsoever is about diplomacy should be in the private area. Okay. So basically, as this guy is, was not respecting the rules of diplomacy, he decided, in fact, to put him down and to explain to him that the game was over. Okay. So <clears throat> what we have been seeing after that is that Macron got, uh, uh, got humiliated. And this is the kind of guy that is extremely revengeful. <clears throat> and therefore, he has been adopting a line extremely aggressive against Russia by providing all the military supply uh, to the Ukrainian uh, army, and especially with the scalp, uh, the scalp missiles that are putting a threat uh, to Crimea because it, can, uh, uh, it has a range that is extremely long and it can hit Crimea. So based on the assets that are sent to Ukraine, based on the fact that Holland has been uh, with Merkel saying that uh, the setup of the Minsk Agreement 2 was just a way for Ukraine, in fact, to gain time, to win time, to uh, militarize themselves and being prepared to a major conflict with Russia. Uh, the Russian administration has been understanding that the West has been lying to Russia. And, you know, with Russian people, it's very simple. When you are telling them something, they are taking it for granted. They believe you. If you are signing an agreement and you are not following up on your agreement, then your credibility is completely gone. And this is what is happening in, in the current situation. The uh, Russian uh, government do not want to listen anymore to the Western governments. And they are playing their own cards. So basically, they are considering <coughs> this uh, military operation as a major security reason for which they need to <coughs> take over whatsoever is necessary in terms of territory to annihilate the capacity of Ukraine to retaliate against Crimea. And this is the reason why I do believe strongly, because I had conversation with, uh, with uh, Alexander Dugin that I met in 2017. In, uh, during, uh, uh, during an economic forum in uh, Chisinau, Moldavia. I've been understanding that for them, securing the Black Sea zone was absolutely critical. And this is the reason why I am believing strongly that due to the lies <coughs> that Holland and Merkel has been providing and uh, broadcast, now they will secure the region of Kherson, the region of Nikolaev, and the, re and the region of Odessa. Therefore, it will cut completely the capacity of uh, Ukraine, in fact, to hit against uh, Crimea. And on top of it, by cutting the access to the Black Sea, they will put the economy of Kiev on the, on the knees. And therefore, they would be able, in fact, to negotiate whatsoever they want to negotiate. <clears throat> there are some other reasons that are uh, for internal politics, because uh, I don't know if you remember, but the 2nd of May 2014, right after the coup of Maidan, uh, the population in Odessa has been retaliating against this coup, because they were disagreeing regarding the way that it has been set up. So basically, Avakov and uh, Parubi, sent uh, neo-Nazi factions in the city, and they have been uh, uh, executing a real butchery. And this, Vladimir Putin will never, ever accept, in fact, to, uh, <clears throat> to forgive them. And on top of it, because this city was built by uh, a French citizen, the nephew of Richelieu, under the order of uh, Yekaterina II uh, of Russia, uh, <clears throat> The, uh, the extremist part of uh, Ukrainian people, they want to destroy every artifact of history that is related, in fact, to Russia in the city. And on the internal 
political point of view. I do believe that Vladimir Putin wants to make a point by taking Odessa and telling them now we are going to restore whatsoever we have been building. So this is the reason why I believe that right now the capacity of diplomacy in France is completely destroyed. <clears throat> and it's even worse than that because you know that uh, Russia has been operating a pivot and is focusing on Africa, which is destroying our interests on an economical point of view because we cannot access the necessary resources, in fact, to run our economy. I'm talking about gas, I'm talking about oil, I'm talking about uranium, and especially with the uh, Niger crisis that we have been uh, uh, witnessing. Now, all those countries that were necessary for our economy are retaliating against us because they are aligned with, uh, with Russia, because they have been understanding that they would be able, in fact, to run their own resources. And those the, 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 the sales of those resources would benefit the population. And Macron is making a gigantic mistake because he don't understand that he need, in fact, to be friendly with those people. And because of his personality that is indexed on humiliating people, we are losing all the ground within our uh, former colonies and our partners, which made us having major problem on this point of view. And on top of it, because he is part of the LGBT lobby uh, that is managing completely Europe right now, he has been pushing an ambassador, in fact, to impose the LGBT culture in Africa. And you can imagine the impact that this had on our diplomacy, because the African uh, uh, culture refused completely this type of uh, behavior. So therefore, our diplomacy in France is completely destroyed. I had a conversation with an officer from uh, Niger, and he said the fact that a lot of the people in Niger were... Um, raising flags of Russia was a repudiation and in order to humiliate Macron, because when you mentioned that he <clears throat> has been humiliating uh, others, they wanted to show a sign of humiliation. One follow-up question. How do you think Macron will react if Donald Trump were to get reelected? Will he double down on Ukraine or will he all of a sudden realize that his game is limited? I have to report to you a conversation that I had with uh, Thierry Mariani, the former Minister of Transport under Sarkozy. Okay, and uh, I was discussing the uh, the way that the situation was evolving, and uh, what he told me is that I understand clearly that Donald Trump is going to be reelected. It's obvious. Biden has absolutely no ground, no grip on the politics right now. He has a lot of stories of corruption with his son, with uh, the story of the Chinese that were just financing him and so on. So basically, this guy is gone. Well, on the population point of view, I do believe that the American people, they are going to vote for him. Now, what is going to happen uh, in regard of the people that want to stop him from uh, uh, putting his feet into the White House? I don't know. But... What I have been hearing from this guy is that there is a lot of hawks within the European Union and they want to trigger a provocation that will bring a major conflict in Europe. The European Union right now is blocked by Hungary because Hungary is saying, no, it's out of question. We are going to finance uh, Ukraine anymore and I do not want to spend our money <clears throat> to arm those people because the government is so corrupted that uh, they are not spending the money on the weapons. They are just putting the money in their pockets. So what does it mean? The European Union is trying to leverage funding on the, on the market by creating a sort of uh, funds with bonds, in fact, to finance the military industrial uh, complex to, in the next three to four year, uh, to five years, going uh, at war uh, against Russia. I have been hearing, in fact, the Minister of Defense of uh, Germany lately, and the guy was saying, we will be at war with Russia in about three to five years. I'm hearing the same sound uh, of uh, bell 
on the on the with the Swedish, with the Finnish, and so on. So basically, as much as the population wouldn't want, in fact, to trigger a major conflict because they don't understand what are the consequences, I do believe that not to understand that if Russia is winning, and Russia is going to win anyway. So basically going against what is uh, set up in terms of dynamic right now, this is completely stupid. It's a question of number. And But they understand that they will be disappearing because they will show and they will prove that the existence is not of NATO is going absolutely nowhere because they were not able, in fact, to stop the retaliation that uh, Russia has been, uh, has been uh, igniting. So basically, when you have somebody that has not the capacity of his ambition, you can make sure of one thing, he's going to make a wrong move. And the wrong move would be, in fact, to trigger a major conflict with Russia. Uh, I have been reading the new doctrine of Russia that has been set up by uh, Karaganov. Uh, that was the 13th of June, 2023. He is saying that due to the aggressivity, due to the lies that the most of the Western governments have been putting together, they will not have any other choice than using a major weapons, in fact, to make people quiet everywhere. And this is what is scaring me a lot. And actually, I was in the <clears throat> I was in the Academy of Foreign Affairs in Vienna at the end of June, and I have been hearing a speech from the former ambassador of of uh, Austria in uh, in Russia. Off the ground, this guy was telling us that everything was fine, that uh, Ukraine will be winning, that uh, Ukraine was the best, they were the strongest, that the uh, European flag will be flying over Kiev uh, on Maidan and this and that. And <clears throat> after this speech, I look at the guy and I say, but uh, are you following the military operation on a daily point of view? Do you understand what is happening on the ground? I do believe that you are you're completely on the side of reality. I say, you know, military operation is not about wishful thinking. It is about to see what is happening on the ground, what is the, the, the dynamic that has been established by Russia, the supply chain that they have been putting together, the lines of defense, and the materials, and the technique, and the new uh, weapons that they have been putting together to make sure that Ukraine will be completely wiped out. I say, you don't understand that there is 1.2 million guys in the Ukrainian army that has been completely destroyed. And if you don't understand that, it means that you are not capable of taking the right decision and to inform your governments that the things are over for <clears throat> definitively. So basically, I remind him uh, what the doctrine of Karaganov was, uh, was about. And I say, you remember this? And I say, have you been reading this doctrine? Say, because if you're continuing to push Russia to its limit, and you are trying uh, major aggression by bringing major troops in Ukraine, they will use nucle nuclear weapons, and the consequences are totally dire. This is the reason why it is a high necessity that Donald Trump will be taking over the White House to stop this gigantic mess. And actually, the group of military that uh, I am uh, in touch with in the US have been mandating me, in fact, to go to uh, Russia and to make sure that we'll be coming out to the settlement to stop, in fact, this, uh, this terrible mess because we are living on one planet and there are no, no planet B. And if there is a major nuclear conflict that is developing in Europe, life will be completely gone on this planet. So we need to be reasonable. We need to understand, and you know, uh, I want to quote uh, what uh, former President Chirac was saying. Uh, he was saying, he was saying, diplomacy is about to wear the shoes of the person that is in front of you to understand how he feels and what are his needs. And after, at the end of the day, you will be able, in fact, to go 50% away in the way that you will be resolving, in fact, your, uh, your conflictuality or your difference. Actually, who in Europe has been taking this attitude? Nobody. 
And if we are not making sure that we are integrating the concept of security for Russia, we are going to continue to live uh, an upside-down Cuban crisis that we have been facing in 62. And I don't know where this is going to bring us, but nothing really good. Our world is changing rapidly. Many crucial systems we depend upon are collapsing. And the most important system that is failing is the food supply. Mr. President, this council is more than aware of the multiple challenges and threats the world is facing today. But the threat of famine, people starving slowly to death, must be a red line. You know, these food prices are going to keep going up and up, and they're going to keep feeding excuse after excuse, narrative after narrative. Yeah, where so you're going to have to get off that treadmill and start getting more autonomous with your own food growing. You want to make sure that you can eat, because frankly, food is the biggest issue as we are going through these transitions. But amidst the chaos, there is a path to resilience. Marjorie Wildcraft is the female leader of the survival and preparedness movement. Marjorie has taught millions of people how to grow an abundance of food in a grid-down situation even if you have no experience, are older, or out of shape. I've spent decades finding the fastest, easiest, and funnest ways for the average person to be able to grow a lot of food. I've created a step-by-step -step process that's so simple that even kids to elders have been using it in order to grow a lot of their own food. And you can too, even if you have no experience, you're older or you're out of shape. Growing your own food is like printing your own money. Get started today. Thank you. Um, I think that was very comprehensive. Before I'll shoot, as a former soldier and still officially reserve officer in the German Armed Forces, before I nerd out on military details, um, Lucas, any questions from your side? Yeah, I think it's real. So, um, Thierry, um, I'm an Austrian myself. I moved to Germany 10 years ago. So, what you mentioned before about the um, Austrian um, former ambassador to Russia, who you had the chance to listen to in Vienna, um, I think this really describes pretty well the Austrian political opinion overall. So, the Austrian population, unlike the German one, for example, has never really been this much against Russia. So in Austria, also when you read Austrian newspapers or when I visit my family over the holidays, people were very much like, yeah, let's see where this is going. But there's not like this punitive desire that many Germans have, for example. In Germany, it feels like Germans want to see, or in the beginning, in 2022, um, Germans wanted to see Ukraine winning for whatever reason. And I think the Austrian population, the Austrians were just more laid back. They were more realistic. They were like, let's say, we need to figure out um, why are the Russians now actually invading these regions in, in the former Soviet Republic of Ukraine? What are they going to do? What, what are their uh, military objectives? And I think it's, it's kind of telling to see that um, you confirm that um, Austrian politicians and ambassadors, after all, are appointed um, by politicians to certain posts abroad, um, that they have a completely different viewpoint, obviously. And I think, I don't know when this happened, probably last summer or in the summer of 2022. And now, one and a half to two years later, um, I think the Austrian political viewpoint has completely changed. Now, the Social Democrat Party, for example, um, they went out, the Freedom Party, they went out when Zelensky asked to speak um, through, a, like, um, through a webcam in the Austrian parliament, in the Austrian Congress. Um, they, simply, they simply left. So there's just uh, like 20 to 30 percent of the um, constituents left. So I think this is really telling. Um, I've heard that Fabian is about to leave, so I'm going to pass on for some more awards from you, Fabian. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, I have to go, but uh, it has been incredibly interesting, and um, the, especially the fact that um, we are in a very dangerous year, um, and um, th your notion of um, a conflict stirring up uh, possibly within this year, I've been hearing that too because my no my sense is that for Putin, it's about buying time. For the Europeans, it's about using the small time frame that is left within the Biden administration to 
let it be the Baltic states, wherever, uh, to have a, a conflict which can then buy them time again and perhaps even give the Biden administration legitimacy. I mean, all I, I do have to mention is that Vladimir Zelensky postponed his elections because of the war, just to note. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, if you want to understand exactly the reason of this conflict, you need to understand the way that Ukraine has been constituted, okay? If you look at the western region of Ukraine, you need to know that uh, those regions like Volhynia and Galicia, they come initially from Poland, and they were associated to Ukraine at the end of the uh, First World War conflict. So, if you look at the Transnistria region, Uh, no, no, the Transcarpathian region, mostly there you will find Hungarian people. You look at the south center of Ukraine, you will find Romanian, especially in the region of uh, Chernivtsi. Eastern of uh, the Dniepr, mostly those people, they come from Russia. And actually this is a Bolshevik that has been assigning those regions to the Ukrainian uh, entity, uh, Bolshevik entity, because as that was an agricultural country, they wanted, in fact, to have an industrial part that would be supporting, in fact, their administration and their economy. And uh, the, 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 the part of Crimea is a little bit different because it's always been Russian. And for an administrative Uh, facility point of view, they have been reattaching the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian entity because most of the time when people had, in fact, to, re- uh, to make some paperwork, some passport and so on, they had to go through the Kerch Bridge, okay? Uh, no, the, the, the Kerch, uh, Kerch Strait, okay, by boats, and then they had to take the train to go to Moscow and then come back, and it was taking an amount of time that was absolutely terrible. So therefore, they had their own parliament that was completely independent, and they reattached it, in fact, to the administration of Kiev because it was more convenient also on the, res- uh, on the, um, on the resources point of view for the water, the electricity, because this is a Zaporozhye uh, facility that was providing the electricity to Crimea. So this parliament was totally independent, and they got reattached just for... Uh, some uh, flexibility on the administrative point of view. So if you look at this patchwork of uh, of populations, it is completely different. They are speaking different languages. If you go to Kiev, for example, I've been living 10 years in Kiev, uh, uh, in Ukraine, three in Odessa and six in Kiev. I've never been hearing anybody speaking Ukraine, never. If you were coming in the, in the center, in the... <clears throat> in the uh, Carpathian region, you will be listening to uh, to Ukrainian, especially in the region of uh, Lviv. Okay, so what does it mean? It means that the Russian culture was completely established in this country, and everybody was living without any problem, without any conflict. But some people decided within the WEF that this country had to fall. In, uh, in the bucket of Europe. And they have been raising, in fact, the different the cultural difference by using the Western, uh, Western population of Ukraine to go against, in fact, the Eastern one. And this is where the conflict has been, uh, how the conflict has been erupted. They have been setting up a coup. They have been using new Nazi uh, uh, militia. And this has been ending into a butchery. So basically, at the beginning of this conflict, Vladimir Putin wanted, in fact, to come out with a settlement because it is not in the Russian policy, uh, policy to interfere in others' country. But based on the moment they started, in fact, this butchery in Odessa, in, uh, in, in the Donbass, in Mariupol, he started, in fact, to... Uh, Uh, to interfere by sending sending some troops in the way that the Donbas population will be protected somewhat. But he still wanted, in fact, to uh, 
settled in fact the situation by diplomacy and this is how in fact the the, the minsk agreement has been set up on the other side the ukrainian they did not want to apply this agreement that has been uh, that that was cancelled uh, end of december 2015 <clears throat> and the conflict has been uh, completely uh, put it, uh, uh, under settlement with Donald Trump because he didn't want, in fact, to hear about uh, about a war in Ukraine. And due to the fact that, in fact, Kolomoisky has been providing all the technology necessary to North Korea to build their ICBM weapons. And I was the guy that has been providing this information. So therefore, uh, Donald Trump didn't want, in fact, to talk to uh, Poroshenko. And this is why, in fact, the conflict has been putting in a sort of uh, uh, sleeping mode. <clears throat> and after that, uh, we know what happens in uh, in 2022, because the Ukrainians, they wanted, in fact, to get back all the territories that they have been, uh, they have been losing uh, in the Donbass. Yep. All right. Well, for my part, thank you so much, guys. Well, Have a great time. show. Bye-bye. Thank you. Um, I think you made the argument very forcefully that uh, and you're a good example that quite often folks tend to have that misconception that everybody who served in the military, which is pretty much everybody present in this podcast, likes to apply military solutions. But I, even in the Iraq war, it was the U.S. military that was probably most skeptical against uh, going into Iraq, and you make a very good case that what diplomacy is kind of not shouting at people, do as I want to, but finding whatever common ground and then find that something better because rarely is war the best solution, if it, if at all. Probably enough, I've already um, threatened that. Coming from a military nerd perspective, but that has broader societal implication. Um, I would like to, so what I've observed about the Western armies, and I would like to check if the French army goes down the same line. So, so I think what we've seen in the conflict in Ukraine is that that Western model of having this um, almost artisanal, high-tech kind of war works so long in a shock and awe campaign against an army like Iraq, but in a war that's protect, protracted in a huge area like Ukraine, where it, it comes sometimes down to exchanging just a lot of shells, shells. And we can't quite produce it, whereas Russia has shown that actually, yes, they can scale up the industry. They can pump out the dumb ones or the dumb grenades. And we haven't been quite so good at, I mean, Germany, we are down to, I think if we get into shooting war, our great Panzer Haubitzer 2000 run out of shells within two, maybe three days. That, that's what we got. And that's the best case scenario. We don't send anything more. How about the French army? Have you guys become a similar high-tech addicted almost like artisanal kind of devices kind of army or are you still somewhat better positioned for any proper shooting war well what's your take on that both on western armies in general am i stating it correctly and b is the french army dif different or what are the strengths and weaknesses of the french army hmm. well it has to be related to the risk uh, that France is facing for the last 50 years. What are the uh, what were the, the the risk in terms of major conflict? Nul. During 50 years, they were just local conflict. So basically, the uh, the French army has been scaling in regard of the dynamic to respect our uh, economic interest, especially in Africa. So we were just having some uh, contingents that were able, in fact, to operate within small area with uh, light materials. So therefore, in fact, the military gears that you would find in the Russian army was not making any sense. Okay, so we had uh, developed the necessary vectors, in fact, to, de uh, to deploy in the regions where our interests were set, especially in Africa. But there was absolutely no budget assigned to respond to uh, 
a high-level conflict like it is developing in, uh, in Ukraine. You need to understand the way that the Russian army has been set up since the end of the Cold War. There was a, a factory in Kiev that was producing about 1.8 million shells, 155 millimeter, for the Russian army. Most of the military complex, uh, complex uh, industry in, uh, in Ukraine was working for the Red Army. Most of the contracts that this uh, complex was getting was coming from the Red Army. And this is the reason it has, it has been causing a huge amount of problem for the Ukrainians, because when the level of confidence has been breaking between Russia and Ukraine, Russia decided, in fact, to, to stop completely the orders necessary to support this industry in Ukraine. So therefore, they had to find new contracts that were allowing them, in fact, to survive. Nevertheless, during 50 years, Ukraine was providing 1.8 million shells to the Russian army. So you can imagine what they have been storing in case of a, of a major conflict. If you look at uh, the, the, the gears at the disposal of the Russian army, it's gigantic. They have something like 14,000 tanks. They have 6,000 warplanes. They have a number of, uh, of uh, artillery piece that is gigantic. It's about 6,700. Who had the equivalents in Europe? Was it making sense for the European government to continue to finance an industry without any threat that would be associated to it? So therefore, when you want in fact, to set up different vectors to support an army, you need to first leverage the risk and associate all the vectors necessary to this risk. Who has the capacity, in fact, to face the Russian army now? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. On top of it, all the warehouses in Europe have been emptied. So therefore, the will for European Union to go after Russia on the conventional war is delusional because nobody has the capacity to do it now. And it's even more risky because if they are trying to do so, in front of them, if the Russian army would be feeling that the threat goes to the level that their territories will be at the risk, they will not hesitate, in fact, to use a nuclear weapon. And when you know that those guys, they have the biggest arsenal in the world, do you really want to play with them? I think this is a gigantic strategic mistake. So therefore, uh, I was discussing with some colleagues uh, within uh, some units, and they were telling me that even for the rifles, the amount of munitions that the uh, French army has is three days. Three days. And who is providing the production of those ammunitions? This is just for rifles. China. China, the best friends of Russia. If suddenly the French army would decide, in fact, to go after war, uh, uh, to go to war after Russia, China can say, well, guys, we don't have any more metal. Sorry. We cannot provide for you whatsoever you have been asking. So what do you do? What do you do? Nothing. It's completely ridiculous. And actually, I've been hearing Macron uh, Saturday saying that he wants to reignite the military complex in France to produce enough weapon, in fact, to go after war. But what does it mean? Is it like a provocation? Is it communication? Is it because he wants, in fact, to show that he's the big guy when he's not? <clears throat> it is a nonsense. It makes me think about a poet from the 17th century. His name was Jean de La Fontaine. You, you know him or not? 
the guy was uh, writing a poem called the frog that want to be bigger than the bull and so you see this frog that is speaking to different animals and she's blowing like this saying you know i am the big frog look at me until a point that the frog goes to a bull and try to be bigger than him and explode and die. You see exactly what Macron is saying. He's communicating, communicating. But at the end of the story, if you want to be bigger than Russia, he will be exploding because this is going nowhere. Thierry, I have a quick question. Do you think you know the World Economic Forum wants a world war, I think, to you know, the whole concept of destroying everything and then rebuilding? I mean, do you think that's... Uh, Possibly Schumpeter. what they're trying to do, huh? <clears throat> Schumpeter. Destroying for rebuilding. I do believe that uh, uh, what the Economical Forum is trying to do is to make a controlled demolitions of our economy because they want to set up very few amounts of mega corporations to control most of the business. And this is the problem that we have with the farmers in Germany and in France right now. The bakers, for example, they are raising the cost of electricity, but I do believe that they do it on purpose. In France, we had the biggest network for producing the cheapest electricity in Europe. European Union has been imposing us to index the price of electricity on the gas, which made our electricity costing about 15 times the price that it should cost us. You can imagine. If you are a baker, you need to operate your, uh, your bakery with electricity. And so therefore, their business model right now is such that they cannot continue to produce because the cost of production is higher than what the customer they are willing to pay for the bread. And we see a numbers of bakers that are collapsing one after the other. What Macron is doing here is subversively trying to destroy this industry to set up industrial bread. He wants to destroy most of the artisanal producer of bread in, the, uh, in France to impose another way of producing. So therefore, this is coming from the wealth. And he is forgetting that pushing people to their limits one day or another, this is ending like 1789. Mm -hmm. For the farmers, yeah, this is exactly the same thing. He is trying to set up a call. Uh, they are trying to set up call calls in Ukraine to produce for everybody. This is not respecting our culture. This is not respecting our economy. This is not respecting our people. This is not respecting the way that we have been living within our countries. Everybody needs a job. We don't need to be slaves. And what the WEF is trying to achieve here is to destroy most of those businesses to impose the major corporations to operate whatsoever is necessary for the population. But at a point in time, you cannot transform people into robots. They have their own way of seeing things. They have their own way of thinking. They have their own way of projecting themselves in the future and projecting whatsoever they want to do. And what those guys are trying to do is exactly what the USSR has been trying. They were using the people as if they were robots. And this is the reason why the structure of the family during the USSR has been destroyed. And that was the babushka, meaning the grandmother, that were raising the kids. Because they were taking a couple of people and saying, okay, the husband has to go to Dnipropetrovsk and the other one has to go to Vladivostok. They were just managing the career of people without considering that a family was built and this family had to operate to raise the kids. And this is what we are seeing through the mechanism that the WEF is putting together to promote minorities like LGBT. They want to destroy the family and make sure that people will be transformed the way that this would be satisfying their ego and their deviance. So therefore, you're completely right. 
those guys at the WEF, they have a plan. They want to execute it. But the population with the story of COVID, COVID was a disaster. Yeah. was a major, major catastrophe worldwide. But in the same time, it was perhaps what was necessary for the population to realize what those guys they have in mind. <clears throat> because this virus, and I was uh, discussing this matter with uh, General Valeli in the US, I was saying, they have been releasing this virus to make sure that Donald Trump will be kicked out of office. Because he was going against the interests of the globalists, and this guy was just a sort of bottleneck within, in fact, the, the plan they have been putting together. So therefore, by releasing this virus, they were absolutely sure that he will be kicked out of office. But now the population have been realizing that this vaccine was extremely dangerous. First of all, because it was coming out of the laboratory of the army in the US. It never been developed, neither by Moderna, neither by Pfizer. Uh, the DARPA and the NEH have been providing the technology and so they, they have been marketing it. And now we are seeing, and I've been looking at the statistic, in every country where the vaccination has been provided massively, you have an overhead of dead of 11% to 16%. That means that the last two years, about 17 million people have been dying because of this vaccine. But now the population is aware of what is happening because everybody has got one contact, one member in the family that is suffering because of this vaccine. So they are understanding what was the plan about and they are going to retaliate against this organization. So it was a terrible thing that it happens, but in the same time, it has been allowing the population to understand. And I do believe that the more they will be aware of what is cooking in the, in the back end of the door, the more they will retaliate against it. And what is a necessity in this story is that the farmer will understand why the subsidiaries that is helping them, in fact, to operate will be completely wiped out. And actually, I had discussion with uh, different uh, uh, major business uh, owners uh, in Germany and Australia, and I was asking them a, a major question. Scholz, after the destruction of the Nord Stream 2, never been retaliating against the United States when we know that this is Biden that has been ordering the destruction of this pipeline. So that was going against the interest of Germany because now the cost of operations uh, in terms of energy is extremely high and therefore this is destroying their capacity to operate at a very low price. So the competitivity of Germany is completely wiped out. Why this guy hasn't been retaliating against that, saying now it's enough, you do not have the right, in fact, to destroy our assets and our economy. Because now most of the businesses that are in needs of cheap energy, where they go? They go to China and they go to USA. But the people that were operating all those businesses, they are still living in Germany. What they are going to do? They're going to go unemployed? This is they, they should understand that this is their elector. And if those electors, they don't have any job, they will have to pay for it. And this is something that for me is still a mystery. Why Scholz haven't been kicking the, the, the wrist on the, on the table saying enough is enough is something that I don't understand. Or the only way to interpret this is that he was aware of the plan he has been taking positions to take advantage of it because he totally agree with the plan that has been established. I would agree, just like Biden, just like Zelensky, just like I think Javier Millet, I think that's a show. So, um, you know, people will see. Everybody's yeah. working for somebody um, else. Just a lot. Thank you so much. Um, I need to head on in like two or three minutes. I think yeah, why don't we close might... it? We'll have theory back down the road. Yeah, I think well, that might be a very good time to wrap wrap off the podcast. We're coming against the hour, and sort of the format is roughly an hour. So, and I think 
Thank you so much, Thierry, for your for your time. I it gave us a very good um, all-encompassing view of uh, what is happening and analysis on so many levels, diplomatic, historical, societal, economical. And I think there will be tons of issues that we'd still like to revisit next time also. And sorry, always to bring it back to the French uh, issues, but we are fascinated by, by the French. Um, for instance, we're going to revisit the letter by the French generals, which I think they wrote twice. They warned against quasi-civil war, I think, about two years ago. And then they wrote it again. See what we then said. We'd like to revisit that. We would like to revisit just like essentially going through the current conflicts and taking your, your experienced eye and, okay, what's actually at the sub non-stated level, but we're going to do that next time. So the viewers can very much look forward um, for another Thierry take on that. So thank you very much. We've enjoyed that most and uh, <coughs> hopefully see you very soon. <coughs> Actually, uh, you know, there is a lot of things to uh, to talk about uh, if we want to understand the, 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 the multidimensionality of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, I've been coming out to a book that uh, one of the associates of Todd is going to distribute in the US. It is called uh, Ukraine the Spy Entrepreneur, everything that uh, they don't want you to know. And uh, actually, there is uh, one of the records uh, inside the, the book that is proving without any deny possible that uh, the COVID has been tested in Ukraine, the laboratory of Odessa in the Meshnikov Institute, much before the pandemic, much before. So people can go to historyofbooks.com soon and yeah. see that in the new in the spring. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you very so much, Kelly. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. We will be back, Thierry. Thank you for your time. Take care. You're, you're welcome. Bye. Bye.